I think at some point, Chris will say, let's, let's take a walk. It'll take me behind the barn and shoot me in the head. You know, it's when I can't hunt anymore. That's, <laughs> I think that's it. If you've seen any Christopher Nolan film from The Dark Knight on, then you've seen some of first assistant director Nilo Otero's work. I first met Nilo back in middle school when we were both 13 or so. We ended up in different high schools and lost touch, but sometime in the early 90s I happened to see his name in the credits of a film, so I called the Director's Guild and left a message, and he called me and we've been friends again ever since. Our conversation for this podcast lasted two and a half hours, so this is just a small sampler, but if you're interested in films and how they're made, and the life perspective of someone who has been in the middle of the Hollywood milieu without himself being in the public eye, then this episode is for you. Please enjoy. I had a love of movies, which only grew. We had a love of movies together when we were kids. It only grew. It grew for both of us. And our era was the movie-worshipping era. Maybe other times were, but I, I think especially for us. And movies moved out of being an, uh, the result of an industrial process into something that was perceived as being the output of individuals you know you went from craft cheese to you know wolfgang puck or something right but uh, at least the way it, it it seemed but at the same time i just love movies it didn't occur to me it was a business you could make a living at it unless you lived in la or in a very small community in new york they were like babies when you're 10 years old they come from under cabbage leaves or uh, stork brings it or something you, <laughs> yeah. you didn't perceive movies as the process of a bunch of people just doing their jobs and the way your mom did go to work and <laughs> come back oh what did you do today well i i ran a switchboard or no i made i you know i i, I ran a soundboard anyway they were magical things but I enjoyed movies as much as anything, and it was sort of the honest, genuine art form of our era, as opposed to what are called fine arts, which I don't know. And movies have always had one foot in each place. Yep. But anyway, so I, didn't, I did not understand movies as a business. I did not understand you could make a living at it. I tried to make a living in advertising in San Francisco when I got out of college. I found that was really difficult. And somebody I knew who grew up in Southern California said, you're and known me through a, a completely different context. Said, uh, you're a bright kid. When you get out of college, give me a call if you need a job. And having beat my head against the wall in San Francisco for three or four months, I gave him a call because, of course, growing up in San Francisco, as you know very well, Arthur, you knew you would live in Moscow before you would live in Los Angeles. I mean, for that is correct. Ago. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to I mean, talk to you about that. So. <laughs> right. And not out of not out of any sense of malice, just out of a sense of calm conviction. You know, it's like exactly. Los Angeles, really? Yeah. And, and but I went there and I found that there were there. My friend had gone to Beverly Hills High School and his norm was people whose parents 
were in the entertainment business, many of them in the feature film business. They understood that as a business that you go into. And just as, you know, uh, people in Pennsylvania follow their parents down into the coal mines, people in Los Angeles follow their parents onto the soundstage. And, and then there's a few people who fall in from the outside like me. And that's the sets I worked on when I first started were very much like that. They were the sons and daughters of people who've been doing this for two, sometimes three or four generations back to the silence, you know? Sure. And then there are people like myself who just fell into it. And I've, I fell into it and found to my amazement that I found myself standing in the middle of movies in the process of being made, which was really exciting and really entertaining and just so much to learn. And it, it was really satisfying in a way because filmmaking, I think, models a, uh, a human behavior that we really evolved for. Making a feature film to me is basically mammoth hunting is what I call it. And it, it really satisfies our the way we evolved, you take a group of people, you give them a collective endeavor, you identify people's special talents, you uh, organize your group in such a way the individual's special talents are maximized to the benefit of the collective, and you turn out this great result, and then you all shake hands and walk away till next season. It's a way people work. I may not know every individual I'm working with by name, but I know them on site. And I may not know them by name, but I know them by behavior. And <laughs> you know, I may not know that fifth hammer's name on the grip team, but I've been watching them work for months now. <laughs> and I could I could tell you all about them. That's you know, that's for sure. It's funny, I remember you know, I've obviously been in a lot of sets myself, uh, all commercial sets and some film sets. But one of the things I always thought about, and I noticed this, especially if it was a long shoot. So, for example, we did this one shoot in Paris. At a couple of, we did two different chateaus and uh, and in and around Paris and apartments. We were there messing around that stuff for about a month. But it's funny because you develop this sense of camaraderie. And as you say, even if you don't know any, everybody's names, there's like, there's this closeness, there's this connection, you know, but then, you know, it's over, you say goodbye and everyone's, you know, there's a little wistfulness and then it's over and you move on to the next thing and you have fond memories, but that's kind of it. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating way that that happens because it's, you know, it's so intense while you're there doing it and then suddenly it's over. Yeah. And you're also, you tend to be dealing with people in their actual state as opposed to a more, how can I say, professional persona. If you work a 12, 13 hour day, it's hard to fake it that long. You know, you can <laughs> yes. work, you can work in a bank, you know, you can, if you can work a nine to five job, I think you can sustain a, uh, a fictional version of yourself or a less authentic but perhaps more utile to the organization version of yourself. It's difficult five or even used to be six days a week, 
12 and a half. It used to be 16 hours a day. You know, you can't fake that. You're going to, people are going to be what they are. And the result is both from a managerial point of view, you're working with real human personalities, not people really conforming themselves to your organization's needs. Of course they do, but to a lesser degree than we find in most jobs in contemporary society. And it made for a real sort of honest and intimate atmosphere. But then it ends, as you say, but that's what happens in real life. All things end. And in many ways, feature films are just a very intense version of normality. We don't work seven and a half hours. We work the hours we do. And it makes for a deep into the pool kind of honesty about how humans work in groups and the system, which I think probably most outsiders would say, oh, it's a fantasy factory. Oh, it's total luxury. You know, uh, oh, it's so it's it's so glamorous in practice. It's the opposite of that, but that's because it is the opposite. That's what makes it so exciting and interesting and yeah. intimate and real and just great. But there's more to it than millionaires asking me for permission to go to the bathroom. That's all I should say. That's, <laughs> that's good that. to know. I'm glad. I'm glad for your sake. It's. Uh... Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's. <laughs> Although it's the best part of the job. Very powerful people ask me for permission to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's uh, one of the perks. I, yeah, I actually like that perspective. <laughs> it, I, I always you need this... to cling to it sometime. It makes me think of my theory of glamour, which is, is probably not just my theory, but which is that glamour only works from a distance. When you get up close, you know, you see the pimples and the, and you know, smell the 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 feet and. The, you know, the stinky armpits and, and you, you know, you, you see the dandruff and all that stuff. It's like, and, and, and that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a human being, obviously, but the sense that filmmaking is glamorous is, <laughs> I remember the first time I was on a, a real set and I was, and I was uh, my first big commercial and I was so excited. I couldn't sleep the night before and I got there and then it was like the most boring day in my life. <laughs> it was like, right. Is anything going to happen here? <laughs> It's just, and well, it's odd that you say it was. It's odd that you say it was the first day because my usual cliche joke on the set is that to someone such as say yourself, I'll turn at a certain point and say, "Nothing as exciting as your first day on a feature set. Nothing as boring as your second day on a feature set." And that's (laughs) (laughs) that first day. It's like, wow, look, there's this, there's this, there's that, there's that. And then the second day, it's like, there's all that same shit again. And uh, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Yeah, It's like multiple takes, you know, that the delivery of that line. Well, when when you've heard it so a lot of times, it's it's very different, you know. It is. And of course, there's also that phenomenon when you, you know, you're obsessing about something on the set. And you go back and you're sitting in the editorial suite. Why were we worried about this? You just use the first take and keep moving. And it's like, <laughs> which to being you get 30 of those. No, <laughs> but of course, you know, right. there's, there's 10 different people who have different opinions. There's a client, there's this, there's that, the other thing. So everybody has to be satisfied before you can move on, which is just, you realize such an enormous waste of time and money, but there it is. 
It's interesting. Are you familiar with, you know, Andrew Stanton? He's a director who was at Pixar for many years. He directed that film, John Carter, not one of the greater films of all time, but he actually has a great TED talk. And one of the things he's talking, he's talking about storytelling. And one of the things he talks about is that you, you, you want to give your audience two plus two, but you don't want to give them four. They have to get right. there by themselves, right? You know, it's like he says, the audience wants to work for their supper. They just don't want to know they're doing it. You know, they they they, right. they don't want just all laid out in front of them. You know, you have to work for stuff. You have to leave some things open, some things open ended, and whatever else. And and you're that's exactly right. You know, if you if you hand it all, it's all on a plate ready to go. It's like who wants that? That's boring. You know, because when you when it's right. not all and there for you, you become part of it. You become engaged. You're part of the story now. Right. I, I always say it's it's really you lead people up to it, but you let them take the last step. You know, it's it's like you're teaching a child to count. Let's count to ten. One, two, and you count, and you get to nine together. You don't say ten. You let them say right. ten. Yeah. And that's and they have a terrific sense of accomplishment as opposed to just repeating what you said. This is how you change people's minds in another context. And that's yep. really what we're doing in filmmaking is affecting people's minds. It, in another context, if you want someone to agree with you, don't lecture them. If you <laughs> can can share some facts with them, uh, you will find that they may very well come to the same conclusion as you. But if you let them come to that conclusion, they will honor it far more than if you just tell it tell it to them. Anyone who's ever had successful interactions with teenagers knows that. <laughs> you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, let them figure it out yourself. That was my approach to tattoos of my teenage daughter. I was like, "Honey, you do what you want to do, but." Let's look at some things that looked really cool in the 70s. Let's look at <laughs> let's look at these this this band this really cool, you know, you've heard this song, you know this. Look at them in their matching leisure suits or, or you know, I mean look at their hair. Look at these things are all changeable. These were the coolest things in their era. They don't necessarily look so cool now. No, they don't. <laughs> Doesn't matter because you can cut your hair, you can change your clothes. But yeah. tattoos forever. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> what's much. What's cool now isn't always cool next year. Right. I think now's the, time, now's the time to get tattoos. <laughs> That's the point. Do what you want to do. Yeah. Make up your own mind. Right. Right. But be informed. You know. But so. be informed. Exactly. Yeah. I'm oh, just I'm informing thought... you that human taste changes. <laughs> Indeed. I've often thought for that reason that uh, now is actually the best time of life to get tattoos. You know, first of all, you know, we're not going to be around that much longer. So we don't have to worry about them uh, going out of style. And, and, and second of all, you know, they're not going to get all saggy and all that because we're already saggy. So exactly. <laughs> you're gonna get yeah, a tattoo. Wait till you're 70. You know, then you're all set. No one cares. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't wait till the, the Alzheimer's tattoo squad comes in with. So you have your phone number on your chest <laughs> right. or something like that. You know, I gotta, I mean, <laughs> found.
when you look back over your career and you think about all the things you've done and all that, you know, what, what, what do you come away with? I mean, is, is it, do you, do you think about, you know, the things you've done or the people you've worked with or what is it that, you know, kind of you reflect on? I reflect on the gift to be present in the job that has so much meaning in modern culture. And at the same time to be, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to follow the first tenet of the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. (laughs) You know, basically being an assistant director, it's the same skills as being a military officer, except, and it's funny when I've done military movies, the first day or two are your military technical advisors are like laughing at you. And then by like day three or four, they come up to you at a certain point and they go, you know, what you do really <laughs> isn't that different than what we do. You take a, a, a group of people, small group of people with diverse skills organized in such a way that they can be applied to a very flexible set of problems. And you solve those problems. I go, yeah, except it's very much like the military, except the pay's better and fewer people get hurt. And that appeals to me in the sense of, like I said, it's satisfying a really profound human need that the way we like to be mammoth hunters that works with our evolutionary social process, you know, socializing process. That just has to do like my rant before about the way we look at art and we look at movies that same way there in practice, they're different. And there's sort of a satisfaction in knowing that too. I have a secret knowledge as it were Mm -hmm. this thing, which, you know, everybody consumes everybody loves, everybody has an opinion of. I am present at the creation and it's, it's really satisfying. It's, it's really satisfying. And I, I consider myself lucky because like I said, I fell into it and I've been lucky at various stages of my career. I just, it wasn't lucky once I was lucky over and over again. I'm lucky now. You know, you're talking to me. I'm I'm valid as a talking head. Ancient at this stage in a young person's game because I work for Chris Nolan, who is a super hot guy who turns out product now that is clearly in the top tier of motion picture production. No doubt. Yeah. And... If he hires me, I must have something on the ball in spite of the fact that I'm 69 years old. Whereas if I were just a 69-year-old person showing up looking for work, that's would say, no, you, you know, you've been at this a while. No, Go but away. No, you don't, we don't think so. We don't think you understand the contemporary world. Whereas there's, you know, because I'm anointed by someone who the dollar figures say, understands the contemporary world just fine, thank you very much. I am still off the run, which is lucky, okay? And I've been lucky uh, uh, many stages along my career and and I 
I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, I hear that. I, I often reflect on that in my own career. You know, and and it's funny. I talk to people, and they, you know, it's, oh, I remember when you came in. You were so talented. I never thought of myself that way. Never thought about being super talented. Just thought I was really fortunate to meet a lot of people at the right time, <laughs> and uh, get along with them well, and do some good work together, and you know, and that was that. Uh, but uh, you know, one thing I do know is that none of it comes without a cost or a price. So my career in advertising, I was married four times, <laughs> and uh, you know, th- th- one I'm still married, but you know, the, the fourth one, but the other three you know, came and went relatively quickly. You know, that was my 80s. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm reflecting about it. I think, well, you know, I was very driven and, and I was moving all over the place. I went from London to Chicago to New York to San Francisco in a short time, dragging people around with me without really thinking about anything, whether they wanted to do that or not. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising, actually. <laughs> I was married so many times. And it, it really wasn't until I got out of advertising, my son was born, and I started, you know, got into a video production and started doing a lot of things in that in that realm that I was able to spend more time focusing, you know, on my relationships and all that. And I'm wondering in your own experience, did you have a similar, you know, was there a trade-off for you? I suppose so. On the other hand, it also fits my personality type. I believe the lifestyle of a passionate commitment to a job, because any job is always a job, okay? Your passion is what they're exploiting. Your, you know, your satisfaction at doing something that you find profound is you have to be careful because they'll give you that instead of money. It's like, Yes, they will. It's a very uh, tricky economic give and take. And because its model is different than the conventional stable social unit, if unless everybody brings the same set of expectations, you are liable to have conflict. You know, it's glass empty, glass half empty, half full. It's like, the bad news is I'm going to go away for six months to New Zealand and you won't see me. The flip of that is I'll come back and I'll be with you for six months, not working. And we can do whatever we want on your schedule, not my adult schedule. And if that's, you know, how do you look at that? Is that good or bad? For me, it worked out and I think it worked out positively but it can be a strain fitting into conventional expectations. And most people have conventional expectations. That's not a bad thing. It's probably healthy and well-adjusted, but we're not all (laughs) well-adjusted. So we seek local adjustment rather than grand adjustment. And the movie business and my form of partnering and so on has worked out for me as, and for those I love, has worked out in a, I think a very, a good way, but not a typical way. 
but they're not typical either. So it, it's it's about expectations and disappointments, I think. And if you can avoid disappointments, and if you can structure expectations, almost any anything can work. I had a job I could take a year off of when my daughter was born. It, it's funny. My her mother had a fantastic corporate job because it was part of her family, but she had a fantastic, it was very a corporation with a, a corporation with a, a company with a conscience. And uh, you know, three months maternity leave at that time, unheard of. Well, that's great until you have a child born three months prematurely. And the maternity leave gets spent visiting, you know, a two-pound infant in an elaborate life support system at a hospital daily. And so when baby comes home, mom has burnt her whole maternity leave. But I had a job where I could just say, you know, I'm not going to work for a while. And I had an apartment. We did have a regular income job. So I just said, you go back to work, honey, like you need to. I'll stay home. And I spent my daughter's first year at home as Mr. Mom. So it enabled, you know, this job, which for many people really separates them from their children. In my specific case, with my specific set of circumstances, enabled me to bond closer than I think most men ever have a chance to bond with the child. Yeah. And then there are those six months after absences. Right. You know, it's, it's just, it's, in other words, it's a different set of expectations and a different set of circumstances, but if it can work for your particular set of adjustments that we all made age zero to three, (laughs) which really runs our life, (laughs) then, then it can work for you. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I had a similar experience with my son. I worked until he was about three and then my wife got got back into the corporate world. And, and so I started working from home and freelancing and that kind of thing, which allowed me to pretty much do the same thing you did, which was great. I was, wouldn't trade it for anything. I was so happy I had that opportunity. So it made a huge difference. It really did. Yeah. Um, uh, for, yeah. for most men, you know, with, the, the ideal in the conventional ideal at best they get two weeks a year with their kid you know right, right. of a 24 hour a full 24 hour days it's yep. you know they they live a very structured life with their family and a lot of people say that's that's what's best for a family maybe yeah. well <laughs> maybe for most families well yeah but but you know we can't all fit into that particular groove <laughs> and yeah, uh, some of us, and, you know, children need, children need res- stability. It's like, that's true. Children need things. People need a lot of things. Nevertheless, I don't know how people got out of bed in Europe in, from, in 1945, given those, <laughs> <laughs> those things, but they did. And a lot of fine people came out of that incredibly, unconventionally difficult set of circumstances right you know people are flexible children are flexible 
children Nothing's are, more flexible than children. The, the best thing a children can have is love and everything else, you know, stability is nice, but you know, right. even with, even with a difficult situation, if you have love, um, they'll be fine. So. <clears throat> yes. I know you have a, a good relationship with uh, Chris Nolan and you guys have made, done some incredible work together. Uh, what, what's next? What's the, for your next 70 years? I'm going to keep working until I can't. Or people say, well, when are you going to retire? My joke is, well, I don't think I will. I, I think at some point Chris will say, let's take, let's, let's take a walk. It'll take me behind the barn and shoot me in the head. You know, it's when I can't hunt anymore, that's, I think that's it. You know, I hope to have realistically two more in me. I am uh, grooming, if that's not a bad word these days, a, a replacement uh, uh for and sort of specialized because assistant directing's evolving in weird ways i think a replacement for myself is something that has to get designed specifically to chris and that's in the works as it were so any thoughts about what happens after you know at some point when assuming that chris does not take you out behind the barn and <laughs> dread your misery Shoot me in the head yeah <laughs> yeah I honestly hadn't thought about it much other than because I've had stretches in my life where I haven't worked for like a year or something like that. People go, well, you have a fantastic career. Let's talk about certain years where it wasn't so fantastic. Okay. You know, it's a, if you look at a resume, that's one thing in practice, there are people who are far more, far less impressive resumes than me who made a lot more money hmm. and did it a lot steadier one reason my resume is the way it is because i was a guy who would just say you know what i'm no i don't want to do that i wasn't the sole breadwinner i could do that you know i i, I was not under certain economic pressures and that being said sometimes the phone just didn't ring it wasn't my yeah. choice i wasn't being someone saying you know i wouldn't Dane to do that project. No, no, the phone didn't ring. That's why I didn't work. And that's to say, I don't face a retirement like uh, a lot of people who went to work, say, for old school corporation. I'll say IBM, not to do that way, out of college who are our age, who worked 50 weeks out of the year with two weeks vacation for the same time. You know, they contemplate retirement as the unknown. I contemplate retirement as 2017. It was like it was like COVID. People were like, "Oh my God, what this is this is a brave new world. What's going on? How do we cope with this?" For me, I'm like, "This is like being unemployed, but there's a lot less traffic. It's great." <laughs> I don't, I don't have much anxiety over it. I, I, I I've never seen myself as really being or doing something useful. So the notion of or the idea that I, at a certain point, I'm not going to be doing anything useful doesn't occur to me as a virtue you know, or a result of having spent uh, a childhood of being an only child. I entertain myself well. I, I'm not afraid of nothing to do. 
Mm -hmm. I, if you have nothing to do, you have plenty of time to think. And I've, call me conceited, but I've always found thinking to be incredibly entertaining. <laughs> I can you. entertain myself. Uh, yeah. it, uh, there's no shortage of things to think about, and I'm not that smart, so I don't solve these things really quickly. <laughs> you know, life to me is more like the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle and not the Monday New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> Meaning it's, it's a lot trickier, and I don't necessarily finish <laughs> everything I set out to do. I don't know. I, <clears throat> I can tell myself, well, maybe I'll sit down and write. But I've been telling myself that since I was five. So it may or may not be true, you know. I look forward to it. I don't fear it. I have a, I have a very short attention span. You know, all, I, I get, as an assistant director, all I do is pay attention. And I pay attention to, I can, man, I can manage to maintain paying attention because it's such a complex, ever-shifting, expensive, meaningful to somebody else process that, and that I find fascinating and love, for want of a better term, it, it enables me to focus my attention. And I get paid for that. People say, how do you take the stress? I'm like, what stress? It's, this is easy. I don't... Uh, I built to do this. I really... I, I, yeah, but that's, that's the beauty of a motion picture set, is you have a bunch of people who are borderline dysfunctional in a number of ways, but they're taken their childhood issues and found a professional peg to hang them on. And now we can all be neurotic to a collective, really beneficial end. And that's, that's great. But when that requirement is over, I, I don't, I don't fear the unknown. That's great. I mean, I think it's the right attitude to have going into it, you know, open to all possibilities, but haven't got big plans in particular, just, you know, ready to see what comes next. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well, all the, the, the problem is assistant directing is unlike a lot of things in the movie business insofar as because it's in conflict with the current myth of how movies work. It is that which cannot be named. <laughs> you know, uh, people from the outside, they come, they visit a motion picture set, frequently mistake me for the director because I'm the guy doing what they imagine directors do, you know, run around, talk to a bunch of people, wave their arms, you know, talk loud tell everybody what they're going to be doing next and so on. And that's what people think directing is. It's like, no, that's assistant <laughs> directing. It's, yeah. it's, like, it's like being first mate on a ship or something like that. But that's in profound conflict with the, you know, the notion of the directorial auteur, which has been elevated, if that's the right word, from the original Cairs to Cinema 60s notion of 
someone working within a system who, in spite of the system, is able to put a personal stamp on an otherwise impersonal system's output to mean it is someone who, from the beginning, controls personally a process which is, in fact, the collective output of many individuals. But that's not really allowed. So, you know, I have, I have, I have a skill, but that skill, people go, oh, why don't you teach? It's like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, when I, I'm occasionally asked to go and lecture at like USC or UCLA, and I just watch the scales fall from people's eyes. It's really funny. And I've had, usually someone says, I've learned more listening to you in the last two hours about how movies get really made than going to film school. All right, well, uh, that's because film school has to honor a certain... Myths and expectations. Time. Yeah, a set of expectations. Yeah, yeah. That if you didn't have those expectations, you would have gone to film school in the first place. So there you go. I believe competitive capitalism is the most efficacious human system. But if you do not have a means of securing the losers and recycling them and maintaining them within the system, then that system will self-destruct. But it's addressing fear of the unknown. To me, all this is illusion. We're all the same. The only thing that varies in human beings is problem-solving ability. The problem-solving ability is how they address the central anxiety we all have, which is how we deal with uncertainty. That's it. Mm. <laughs> There's uncertainty in our lives and, you know, how we deal with it is called life. And a huge part of that and a very efficient way to deal with that is denial. Let's start with denying death, you know, <laughs> and it goes from there. <laughs> Because yeah. that's the main mechanism we have to deal with, you know, that, and that's what separates us from so many other species, I believe, is that, you know, it's, we have a sense of the future. We, we are the planning animal and that's our superpower. But the weakness with, that comes with that superpower means that we have to have a mechanism to save us from our own ability Meaning the ability to plan is, you know, how can I say, engages us with uncertainty, which is how we deal with uncertainty, meaning how our ability to, to deal with that is what makes for human personality and human behavior. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Thought, Everything is elaborations on that. Sure. Um, there's a quote that I always remember in this context, which is, man plans, God laughs. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today on the Never Too Old podcast. 
Please look for the next episode in which I talk with Dia Bondi about her journey of self-discovery and how she came to write her new book, Ask Like an Auctioneer, in which she helps people understand how to successfully make bold asks they would never have thought possible. I'm still really driven by adventure and the pursuit of like really deeply connected experiences. (laughs) 